Hello and welcome to this bonus episode of the EMJ podcast. My name is Mark Koskila and today I'm pleased to be bringing you an exploration on the carbon footprint of different inhaler devices. This podcast has been sponsored by Trudell Medical International and generated from a pre-recorded webinar from December 2021. Joining me for today's podcast are two experts in the field who are going to offer their perspectives and provide valuable insights into the challenges faced by clinicians and patients when balancing the benefits of necessary treatment and the obligation to limit the environmental impact of inhalers. First up, we have Omar S. Usmani, who is a professor of respiratory medicine at Imperial College London and a consultant physician at the Royal Brompton Hospital and St. Mary's Hospital, London in the UK. In 2005, Professor Osmani received the Best PhD Thesis Prize at the National Heart and Lung Institute, Imperial College, London. He also received an Alavi Mandel Award from the American Society of Nuclear Medicine. These awards were related to inhaled aerosol science and drug delivery to lungs. Next up, we have Dr. John N. Pritchard, who is a consultant and member of the United Nations Committee on Propellant Medical Usage. Dr. Pritchard is a private consultant specialising in strategic approaches to developing respiratory devices, drugs and digital health. At different stages in his career across three major pharmaceutical companies, he's been associated with the launch of 11 major products. Dr. Pritchard has published widely in the field as well as having served as a board member on various scientific and industry bodies. He sat on a number of advisory boards and is currently a member of the UN committee that makes recommendations on the essential uses of propellants. With that said, it's a pleasure to hand over to our chairman, Jason Suggett from Trudell Medical International. Hello and welcome to today's webinar, The Greenest Inhaler, a Patient-Centric Approach. My name is Jason Suggett. I'm Group Director, Science Technology at Trudell Medical International, who are sponsoring today's webinar. And I have the great pleasure in introducing the two presenters today. We are very fortunate to have a couple of global leaders in the respiratory medical field, both extensively published with a wealth of experience in the formulation and development of respiratory medicines and their subsequent use in clinical practice to manage patients' respiratory conditions in the real world. Professor Omar Azmani is Professor of Respiratory Medicine in Imperial College, London, and Consultant Physician at Royal Brompton Hospital and St. Mary's Hospital, London. He's heavily involved in respiratory clinical practice and clinical research, has leading roles in both the European Respiratory Society and the Aerosol Society, and is the current chair of the UK Inhaler Group. Dr. John Pritchard is a private consultant in respiratory and digital health, following a long career in the pharmaceutical and medical device industry, developing and launching respiratory products. He was the recipient of the 2018 RDD Charles Thiel Award for Outstanding Research and Discovery in Respiratory Drug Delivery, and is a member of a UN committee responsible for propellant medical usage. So I'll hand over to Dr. Pritchard to start the webinar. Thank you very much, Jason. Climate change affects all of us in some way, um, almost every day of our lives. And treating respiratory diseases is no different. The object of today's webinar is to explain um, how this is impacting uh, the global use of respiratory products and the other end, how we can uh, address the needs of individual patients to ensure that we can treat them in the most environmentally friendly way. Climate change is in the news almost every day. Um, even over my lifetime, 
just how much average global temperatures have increased over the last 50 years. And of course, this has major impact to people's lives, whether it's through flood, drought, fires, or many other aspects of um, health, and in particular respiratory health, as the atmosphere warms. Um, much of this is due to the emission of greenhouse gases, which get trapped in the upper atmosphere, and then uh, tracked uh, solar radiation, which in turn heats the earth. Carbon dioxide has increased in line with temperature change over the last 150 years, suggesting a very strong causal relationship between the two. If you look at where the carbon dioxide comes from, there are obviously many natural sources, and indeed there are natural sinks, particularly the ocean, to trap the carbon dioxide afterwards. But you can, these natural processes are largely in balance. The problem comes from the extra carbon dioxide that has been introduced through man-made processes, in, in particular fossil fuel combustion and also other industrial processes. There are many different sources of greenhouse gases from many different industries, and it means that every one of these industries has to take their own responsibility for trying to mitigate global warming and reduce the emissions of greenhouse gases. In the particular case of um, treating respiratory disease through the use of inhalers, um, meter-dose inhalers contain uh, fluorinated uh, hydrocarbons. And these escape as the MDI is used into the upper atmosphere where they can, can cause global warming. At the moment, they are a very small proportion of the emissive use. However, um, meter dose inhalers operate not only in a regulated environment for uh, how they treat patients from a safety and efficacy perspective, they are also regulated from an environmental perspective as well. And it was decided that um, after the successful phase out of chlorofluorocarbons, CFCs, under the Montreal Protocol, this was an excellent mechanism by which we could control and phase down the emission of these so-called F gases or, or fluorine-containing gases. Interestingly, CFCs were also greenhouse gases. And the elimination of their use is actually the single biggest man-made initiative so far to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. Today, MDIs account for around 0.03% of all emissions. So they are not making a big contribution, but nonetheless, as I said, uh, every industry has to take responsibility for its own carbon footprint. The agreement under the Montreal Protocol is that initially the transition will take place more rapidly for Western countries, notably the European Union and the United States. And indeed, um, in Europe, the FGAS regulations came into force long before there was even regulation under the Montreal Protocol. Interestingly, at that time, the use of meter-dose inhalers were exempted from those regulations. Um, but you should note that these regulations are currently uh, out for consultation and under review, and so that situation may change in the future. More recently, uh, in the United States, there was the introduction of the American Innovation and Manufacturing, or AIM Act, uh, at the end of last year. 
And this embeds in US legislation the commitments that were made under the Montreal Protocol. Um, if we look at how the US are addressing this, it's actually a process remarkably similar to that used for the phase out of CFCs. And so there are certain applications across different industry sectors that have been granted an automatic essential use uh, over the next few years. But it's important to note that this is an essential use. It will be reviewed regularly and where uses are no longer deemed to be essential, then that exemption will be removed. Currently, meter dose inhalers occupy about 18% of the allocation to these uh, exempted sectors. And that represents about 1.8% of the US commitments to the phase down of the emission of greenhouse gases. But if the industry does nothing, this is going to become 9% by 2034. And so clearly as time goes on, the emissive use of meter dose inhalers will become a much more significant part of the overall emission of greenhouse gases. There are other factors that come into play as well. I mean, clearly meter dose inhalers have a number of environmental impacts, um, as do other forms of inhaler. And so all of these are regulated. Then individual companies that um, produce and sell inhalers have their own targets uh, from a corporate social responsibility perspective in order to reduce their footprints. And it was interesting to note at the uh, recent meeting of the parties in Glasgow, COP26, a number of companies signing up to initiatives to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. In the UK, even our own National Health Service has targets to reduce their, their carbon footprint. And this has led to um, both guidelines on which sort of inhaler you should use, which take into account uh, the carbon footprint, but also now incentives for primary care physicians to actually switch their um, in, uh, patients from meter dose inhalers to dry powder inhalers. Then, of course, there are the voice of the environmental pressure groups um, frequently um, forming some kind of uh, demonstration uh, to get news coverage. And then not only the news media, but lots of social media also weigh in with their views on uh, the issues. One of the problems with this is that newspaper headlines or social media um, tweets can result in patients feeling under undue pressure to not continue to the use of their MDI. And under those circumstances, um, they could either stop treatment or switch to an inhaler that may not actually be suited to their particular needs. And so this is clearly a situation we need to avoid. The industry is responding. And so there are two propellants now, um, HFA152A and hydrofluoroolefin, HFO1234, um, which are under active consideration as use as MDI propellants to replace our current HFCs. Um, both of them, though, still need to undergo significant safety testing. And so this isn't a replacement that can take place overnight. It will take place over a number of years. But you can see, encouragingly, there are companies out there that have already voiced their commitment to making this transition happen. If they were to adopt, for example, 152A, which has a tenfold lower 
carbon footprint than the current HFCs. Correspondingly, the emissive uses are going to come down by almost an order of magnitude. And that's going to start to put them into the same ballpark as a dry powder inhaler. In, in this case, the comparison was done with the Chiesi Foster dry powder inhaler, which can be one or two doses per treatment. Um, if the products were switched to an HFO, which has almost no global warming um, potential, then these decreases would be even more significant. The problem is that um, whilst it can be done for, for controller medication, it's really the focus on rescue medication that is the big problem. Uh, notably, salbutamol, but other uh, short-acting beta agonists and short-acting muscarinics as well, contribute to the vast majority of the doses that are used in MDIs. I published a little while ago a survey showing that 80% of the doses in the uh, most significant markets around the world uh, are delivered by MDI form, and most of these uh, are short-acting beta agonists. And allied to this use is undoubtedly the fact that salbutamol, the leading short-acting beta agonist, is incredibly cheap to um, prescribe or to buy um, if patients need to um, access the medicine privately. And so uh, in order for them to continue to get access to affordable medicine, any replacement is going to have to come in at a comparable price. And realistically, at the moment, the meter dose inhaler is the only dosage form capable of being able to deliver salbutamol at such a low cost. Not only that, but of course, in some markets, dry powder inhaled versions of salbutamol don't even exist. And so for those markets, they actually have no opportunity to switch at the moment. Um, interestingly, even the NHS, which I mentioned earlier, are only incentivizing the general practitioners to change uh, patients with controller medication. They are not focused on reliever medication, which is recognized as having a crucial role in an acute exacerbation. And because the rescue medication dominates the market, actually a switch to controller of controller medication will have only minimal impact on the overall carbon footprint uh, resulting from respiratory therapies. So this really leads on to a significant problem then. We clearly want to do something uh, for the environment. It's, it's uh, our moral right, uh, duty to do so. But at the same time, we cannot jeopardize the um, individual patient in terms of their treatment and outcomes. And interestingly, um, it's documented that if patients switch from a meter dose to a dry powder inhaler, some of those patients, because of an inability to use the inhaler properly, will lose control. And if one of those patients ends up in hospital, that has a larger carbon footprint than actually one and a half years of daily meter dose inhaler use. And that has an associated cost with it as well. It's been suggested that close to 4% of patients could suffer an exacerbation if they switch to a meter dose inhaler. And that it just in the UK alone could cost the NHS um, nearly 80 million pounds. And so we have to try and find this balance between minimizing the environmental impact of the patient and their inhaler, and at the same time maintaining their disease control. And to address this, I'm delighted to hand over to Professor Osmani.
Thank you very much, um, John, for setting the scene. And what I want to do now is to take the core elements that John has been talking about in, into the clinical realm and how can we um, understand and approach the environment um, with our patient um, in the clinic. So let's start off with the ERS position statement on asthma in the environment. And this was published um, on um, World Asthma Day this year and really outlines four key areas the harms caused by climate change as john has talked about um, to the health of people specifically with asthma the ers's recommendation to fully utilize the european union green deal the concept of the green asthma patient um, and inhalers in the environment which is a, a key so the statement actually um, can be summarized where we've said that we believe that restricting adults and children's access to metadose inhalers will be a retrograde step for the respiratory medical community and respiratory practice in modern times. And the key sentence there really reflects to when the majority of medicine is now about personalizing treatment. So for example, in diabetes in high blood pressure, in rheumatoid arthritis, um, and also biologics in asthma, we're talking about phenotyping, characterizing and personalizing medicine, then we need to have the opportunity to be able to personalize the inhaler device to the patient that we see in front of us in the clinic. So I would caution against a blanket switch um, in our patient and actually put the patient first and their needs with respect to the device. And we'll be coming and touching on some of those aspects. So we all appreciate um, the innovation and evolution in inhaler devices. Many of those will be very familiar to us the last 60 years with formulation development, with um, um, ergonomic design of, of the inhaler device um, and the various components related to um, the engineering of the device. Inhaler technique has really not improved over the same period of time. And this is a systematic review that was undertaken by Sanchez and colleague. So why the disconnect? why the great innovation and evolution, but actually the patients have not really improved their inhaler technique in the context of this innovation. And I think very much the problem doesn't lie with the patient or indeed the engineering, but actually lies with us as healthcare professionals. We are unable to impart the knowledge to our patients to be able to use those devices probably. Why? Because we've not learned it ourselves and we've not been taught and we lack knowledge. And this is addressed very much in this nice systematic review by Vincente Plaza. So summarize that healthcare professionals are lacking in inhaler knowledge. The four main disciplines involved in inhaler management, so doctors, primary and secondary care, nurses, physiotherapists, and pharmacists, and junior and senior levels in all these four disciplines, in over 6,000 of them, at best 12%, of healthcare professionals are able to demonstrate correct inhaler technique to their patient. Put this another way, in those four main disciplines, nine out of 10 of us lack inhaler knowledge in order for it for us to impart that to our patients. And really over the last few months, um, I've been actually saying that this is a patient safety issue. The patient who relies very much on the device um, and um, to be able to get the drug into the lungs and achieve therapeutic benefit, it's a patient safety issue if we're not able to impart the right knowledge to our patient. And therefore, shouldn't we be filling out those patient safety incident forms when we see a patient come back to us and say, look, this drug or this device is not working for me? 
So something to think about, and some most importantly, we need to train ourselves. So we appreciate that inhalers are used incorrectly by our patients. And so let's divide them into two groups. So you've got the wet aerosol and you've got the powder, dry powder aerosols. And we recognize that suboptimal use affects clinical efficacy. So let's look at the metadose inhaler. The biggest problem with the metadose inhaler is our patients shake them and they inhale too fast and too quick. So they need to inhale slowly and deeply. So if you ask me how slow, slow, how deep is deep? Well, we instruct our patients to lift their chin up, breathe out gently. And breathing out is really important because they need to have the volume to inhale the aerosol going and get that into the lungs, past the throat. And so lift your chin up, breathe out gently, and then inhale slowly and deeply over five seconds. So it's a comfortable, natural, gentle, slow, and deep inhalation followed by a breath hold pause. And when you relay that information to the patient, you can see it's very much a light bulb moment. They're not anxious anymore. They're not fearful of engaging with the inhaler device, having been told um, incorrectly that they need to actuate and inhale almost instantaneously. Relay to them that they've got five seconds to start breathing in and the upstroke is the first second to actuate the device and to keep breathing in over the remaining four or a further five seconds, followed by a breath hold pause. Now, we also recognize that some patients are unable to engage with the metadose inhaler following training, and therefore one would use a valve holding chamber or a spacer device, and we'll come back to that a little bit later. Now, in contrast with powder inhalers, we need to make sure that our patients' respiratory muscles have the strength to be able to generate the air flows and the forceful inhalation. Why? Well, they need that forceful, deep, strong inhalation to be able to achieve three things. One, pull the drug off the lactose molecule. Majority of dry powder inhaler devices have a lactose molecule um, um, and the drug is attached. So pull, two, break, break that powder up into smaller particle sizes, and three, carry that drug past the throat in the lungs. So we need that forceful inhalation by the patient to pull, break, and carry. Now, we recognize, though, that patients in real life have suboptimal inhalation flow. So from dry powder inhaler devices, as soon as we've taught them and um, the remote consultation has ended, we know that they will have different inspiratory flows and they may not be able to achieve the minimal or optimal inhalation flows required to activate the dry powder inhaler device. So let's delve into that into a little bit more detail. And over the last few months, I've also been talking about the fact that we all need to be device detectives. We need to be able to spot correct or indeed incorrect inhaler use. Why? Large systematic review. We clearly showed that errors in use of the inhaler device in patients with asthma and COPD was statistically significantly associated with poor disease outcomes, so worsening disease control or disease exacerbations, and statistically significantly associated with a greater health economic burden. So we need to be able to spot this, we need to train ourselves, and we need to recognize when a patient is using an inhaler incorrectly. And so in the same way that whenever we meet our patients, we ask them about their smoking. So the smoking opportunity, are you still smoking? If so, how many? And can we help you? We need to, every patient with an inhaler, have the inhaler opportunity. So are you using an inhaler device? Oh, yes, you are. Oh, yeah, just to show me which one you're doing and how often do you use it and just quickly demonstrate how do you use it? And we need to be able to spot whether they are engaging with that device 
in a correct or indeed incorrect manner. So John wrote a very um, nice review on climate change and actually in that article talked about um, certain patient groups and their ability to engage with inhaler devices and stated that the very young, the very old and the very ill in that, those patient groups, DPIs may be contraindicated. So why? Well, these groups of patients actually struggle to generate the sufficient inspiratory flows that I've been talking about in order to achieve adequate drug delivery from the dry powder inhaler device. So pull, break and carry the very young, the very old and in the very ill. So we need to be cognizant of the scenarios and the patient groups in whom actually dry powder inhaler devices may not be the best um, device um, for them to use. So let's now delve even further and recognize um, uh, um, patients with asthma, which is what this data is, in the real life community and um, their ability to engage with dry powder inhaler devices in a consistent manner. A critical study by David Price, and he showed that insufficient inspiratory effort in dry powder inhaler devices was statistically significantly associated with uncontrolled asthma and more exacerbation. Insufficient inspiratory error in two familiar dry powder inhaler devices, both of them a third had insufficient inspiratory error and that was associated with worsening asthma control and more exacerbations. So we do need to optimize the meter dose inhalers that we are using. And we, after assessing that patient and their ability to use a um, meter dose inhaler, um, we need to recognize that we've got the maintenance therapy and we've also got the reliever therapy. And actually, um, as John has described, we need to be very cognizant that the reliever meter dose inhaler may actually have a um, greater impact um, on the carbon footprint. In fact, indeed it does um, than maintenance meter dose inhalers. So it's not also just about the inhaler, it's about many elements in the patient in front of us in terms of getting them to become the green asthma patient, as talked about in the ERS um, position statement. So have we actually got the diagnosis right? Have they been inappropriately given inhalers and actually they don't have asthma? Um, have we actually um, made sure about the technique and their use so that they are confident in able to use the device and are getting benefit um, rather than their inability to use it? We're not picking this up. And actually what's happening is that the dose is being increased or they're being given another inhaler device. Certainly over the last 18 months, the footprint of traveling to and from outpatient clinics or indeed hospitals has decreased. Um, and again, that's an important um, element in, in terms of the green respiratory um, patient. So we need to recognize that we need to optimize the inhaler, all inhalers that we're using in our patients, but also there are many other elements that we can improve um, with respect to the um, green respiratory patient. And so one technique of optimizing um, inhaler um, use, particularly meter dose inhalers, is with the appropriate valve holding chamber or spacer device. And as we've commented on, and we all have experienced in our clinical scenarios, spacers overcome coordination issues. You see short-acting beta agonists with a meter dose inhaler alone, and that's with Ventolin. And you see it in a coordinated patient and in an uncoordinated patient, a Ventolin meter dose inhaler with air chamber. Um, plus flow view chamber, and you can see essentially that there is a greater um, deposition um, uh, achieved um, when you have a valve holding chamber with the meter dose inhaler. And so we're improving lung deposition, but another key area is 
that by using a valve holding chamber on a metatis inhaler, you are reducing throat deposition. So again, patients, they shake the device and they go, breathe in too fast, too quick. And I always check my patient's oropharynx um, whenever I see them. And sometimes they do have candida or they describe um, dysphonia or a hoarse voice. And that signifies that actually the drug is impacting through the large particles in the back of the throat. And throat deposition matters not just for the local side effects that our patients may experience, but also that the Throat deposition can go into the food pipe, can go into the stomach, and can actually then reach the bloodstream. So I also use oropharyngeal deposition as an indirect marker of drug being able to reach the systemic circulation. And if I see that, then it will be giving them a valve holding chamber or, and, and also training them on the use of the device that they're using. So we do need to make every puff count to stop the throat side effects, to improve the lung deposition, and to essentially um, improve coordination issues, and that can be achieved with valve holding chambers. And so this study is quite interesting because it compared a metadose inhaler um, with dry powder inhaler devices and a metadose inhaler with a valve holding chamber. And again, we've talked about dry powder inhalers, um, difficulty of patients achieving the optimal inspiratory profile. But here we see throat and lung deposition. You see commonly used dry powder inhaler at its optimal inspiratory flow rate of 60 liters per minute and nearly 80% of oropharyngeal deposition, even at its optimal um, flow rate of inhalation flow rate of 60 liters per minute and um, about 19% lung deposition. Another familiar dry powder inhaler device, optimal flow rate 60 liters per minute and 85% deposition in the throat. 10% in the lung. The um, ametidose inhaler with the air chamber, um, the valve holding chamber, as expected, 5, 5.6% oropharyngeal deposition and 32% lung deposition. So we need to recognize um, three key points from here. One, that um, patients need to, even on the optimal inhalation flow, can actually, with a dry powder inhaler device, can actually get um, oropharyngeal deposition. Two, that actually using a meat dose inhaler with a valve holding chamber can decrease that throat deposition. And three, that actually your lung deposition can actually also be improved. So how do you and I then in our busy clinics, taking on board the studies um, and the concepts that John has talked about, tailor the right device for the right patient? Well, this is the ACT on inhalers algorithm, assess, choose, train. Um, it's on www.guidelines.co.uk. Um, it's the second version, and we're planning to update this in the next year or two. But for the current version you see is here on the screen. So what do we do in a minute? Well, we ask our patients, can you lift your chin up? So that flops the tongue away, opens the airway up, a bit like basic life support. Whenever we rescue a patient, the first thing we do is um, lift up the chin on jaw thrust, flopping the tongue away, open the airway up, breathe out gently, as I've described. Patients need that inspiratory inhalation volume. And then we ask them, can you inhale slowly and deeply and gently and comfortably and naturally over five seconds, followed by a breath hold pause. And if our patients can do that, then you see the red circle there, we consider a metadose inhaler or a wet aerosol, you know, soft mist inhaler, breath actuated inhaler, plus or minus a spacer as we've discussed. 
We also ask our patients, lift your chin up, breathe out, and can you inhale forcefully, deeply, and quickly for at least three seconds? So what, and then what we're doing there is we're visualizing the patient's neck muscles, the scalene, to remain tense, their intercostal muscles, chest muscles to remain tense, and their diaphragm to rise up and remain in that stable position up for at least three seconds. And that gives us an indirect assessment of their respiratory muscle strength without any gadgets to know that they've got enough muscle strength to generate those inspiratory airflows to be able to achieve those three points of pull, break, and carry the powder past the throat and into the lungs. And if our patients can do this, then we will, in that blue circle there, consider a dry powder inhaler device. So we've assessed, we've chosen, and then we train. And certainly, again, in the last 18 months, we've been using um, inhaler videos in our remote consultations. So we've spent a minute on this, two minutes on the videos, and so three minutes out of our 10 or 15-minute consultation, we have sorted the right inhaler for the right patient. And then we ping those videos to the patient. Um, uh, smartphone or indeed their email so that they can continue to engage um, and, um, uh, and brush themselves up on technique um, remote away from the consultation. So steps to reduce the environmental impact of inhalers. I've talked about these a little bit earlier on, and this was an article that was written by M. Duncan Keeley. So we need to improve asthma control and so reduce the use of SABA. We've seen the burden of SABA um, on the emitidose um, um, inhaler use. So and, and so we need to improve asthma control. Every patient now with asthma um, should be on a low-dose inhaled corticosteroid. So optimize the inhaled corticosteroid in order to relieve the dependence of the patient on the um, uh, reliever inhaler. So in COPD patients, similarly, we need to improve their control and, and, and again, the maintenance inhaler for the COPD patient and so that we can decrease the SABA reliever inhaler and promote effective self-management. Personal action plans um, um, are a key component of that. Ensure that the inhalers are used with the correct technique. We've talked about that um, for greater effectiveness. Optimal use of spaces to increase clinical effectiveness of PMDIs. We've talked about the patient groups and also those that can't coordinate properly. And also prescribe MDIs so as to minimize propellant quantity. And there is a choice that we have with the relief MDIs. And also there's a choice that we have with the maintenance MDIs with respect to the lower impact um, propellants that are um, 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 available currently to us. So ensure patients have an MDI in the emergency situation with a spacer. So that was a very ill group. Um, and they need to be taught how to use that when they are well. A lot of patients are not taught how to use their MDI and spacer when they're well. And the first time they get to use them is in the acute emergency situation. Ensure that MDIs are not discarded before they are empty and also promote inhaler recycling. But unfortunately, governments have not supported this um, um, concept or infrastructure um, to make it easy for patients to um, deposit their inhaler somewhere, be that in the local pharmacy, and for each inhaler to be recycled, not just for the propellant, but also for the plastics. So John has talked about this, but really, um, we must not stigmatize our patients for taking their essential licensed medication and, and cause unnecessary anxiety and suffering. Another key point is devices should not be considered to be interchangeable. Um, inhalers are not a one-size-fits-all device. Every inhaler has a different lung deposition, a different throat deposition, a different requirement on inspiratory flow, certainly amongst the different dry powder inhaler devices.
A global wholesale switch of MDI reliever Saba medication will lead to huge cost increases in these life-saving medicines in low-middle-income countries. And actually, the UK Primary Care Respiratory Society, in their position statement um, in February of 2020, stated that we do not support policy on blanket switching or advocate attempts to phase out metadose inhalers. So I think in summary, um, John has um, clearly um, identified how the pharmaceutical industry are rising to the challenge um, with respect to um, CFCs and now with the different propellants and two companies are committed to actually translating the science and the safety testing into inhalers that will be available by the end of 2025 in meter dose inhalers for our patients that switching only the controller medication to a dry powder inhaler may have minimal impact on emissions. And we see that the reliever Saba MDIs are the main source of emissions. And we need to improve the control of our patients. So for our asthma patients, make sure they are on health corticosteroids to decrease their reliance on Saba. And actually, if we have a patient that is using a Saba, more than two or in some, uh, some um, uh, position statements, three, units per year, then that should be a red flag for us to review that patient. There's a significant impact if a patient becomes uncontrolled, and John showed that data and that health economic data, um, and one hospital admission correlating to 1.5 years use of metadose inhaler. And really, what can we do? Well, consider using inhalers with a lower carbon footprint propellant amongst the relievers and amongst the maintenance metadose inhaler, they are available to us. Recognize the carbon footprint of an exacerbation and try and improve our ability to control our patients with asthma and indeed COPD. Um, make the most of each puff, um, um, as we've seen, if the MDI is the appropriate device for the patient, not to switch um, blanket switch and to consider using a valve holding chamber that may actually help the patient improve their inhaler technique, reduce the throat deposition and improve lung deposition. So on that note, the greenest inhaler, um, John and I would say very much is the one that the patient can and will use. And it's really important us, for us to be um, those device detectives when we're seeing a patient in front of us in the clinic. And that concludes today's discussion. Thank you to Professor Osmani and Dr. Pritchard for joining us today and sharing their insights around the importance of an individualized approach to patient outcomes by focusing on education, correct prescribing, and ensuring optimum medication delivery with our audience. If you'd like to know more about the Greenest Inhaler and its patient-centric focus, then please either visit the EMJ website or do take a look at this podcast episode's show notes. If you enjoyed this episode, then please don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcast from. We release a new episode every Friday, as well as plenty of bonus episodes like this one. So until next time, take care and goodbye for now. Mm-hmm.